Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Linebarger Definition of Psychological Warfare Psychological warfare seeks to win military gains without military force. In some periods of history, the use of psychological warfare has been considered unsportsmanlike. It is natural for the skilled soldier to rely on weapons rather than on words, and after World War I, there was a considerable reluctance to look further into that weapon, propaganda, which Ludendorff himself considered to be the most formidable achievement of the Allies. Nevertheless, World War II brought a large number of American officers, both Army and Navy, into the psychological warfare field. Some of the best work was done without civilian aid or sponsorship. Captain J.A. Burden on Guadalcanal wrote his own leaflets, prepared his own public address scripts, and did his own distributing from a borrowed marine plane, skimming the treetops until the Japanese shot him down into the surf. He may have heard of OWI at the time, but the civilians at OWI had not heard of him. Psychological warfare has become familiar. The problems of psychological warfare for the future are problems of how better to apply it, not of whether to apply it. Accordingly, it is to be defined more for the purpose of making it convenient and operable than for the purpose of finding out what it is. The whole world found out by demonstration during World Wars I and II. Psychological warfare is not defined as such in the dictionary. Definition is open game. There are three ways in which psychological warfare and military propaganda can be defined. First, by deciding what we're talking about in a given situation, book, conversation, or study course. Second, by determining the responsibilities and authority involved in a given task. Or third, by stating the results which are believed to be accomplishable by the designated means. Plainly, the staff officer needs a different definition from the one used by the combat officer. The political leader would use a broader definition than the one required by soldiers. The fanatic would have his own definition, or more probably two of them. One, such as promoting democracy or awakening the masses for his own propaganda, and another, such as spreading lies, corrupting the press, or giving opiates to the people for antagonistic propaganda. Definition is not something which can be done once and forever for any military term, since military operations change, and since military definitions are critically important for establishing a chain of command. The first method of definition is satisfactory for research purposes. It may help break a politico-military situation down into understandable components. The second method, the organizational, is usable when there exists organization with which to demonstrate the definition, such as propaganda is what OWI and OSS perform. The third method, the operational or historical, is useful in evaluating situations after the time for action has passed. Thus, one may say, this is what the Germans did when they thought they were conducting propaganda. Since the first lesson of all propaganda is reasoned disbelief, 
It would be sad and absurd for anyone to believe propaganda about propaganda. The propaganda boys in every army and government are experts at building up favorable cases, and they would be unusual men indeed if they failed to work up a fine account of their own performance. Propaganda cannot be given fair measurement by the claims made for it. It requires judicious proportioning to the military operations of which it is, in wartime, normally a part. Broad and Narrow Definitions The term propaganda springs from the name of that department of the Vatican, which had the duty of propagating the faith. A multitude of definitions is available. Among Americans, Walter Lippmann, Harold Laswell, and Leonard W. Jube have done some of the most valuable critical, analytical, and historical writing. But a host of other scholars have also made contributions, some of them works of very real importance. For the purposes of explaining what this book is about, propaganda may be defined as follows. Propaganda consists of the planned use of any form of communication designed to affect the minds, emotions, and action of a given group for a specific purpose. This may be called the broad definition, since it would include an appeal to buy antidote toothpaste, to believe in the theological principle of complete immersion, to buy flowers for uncles on Uncle's Day, to slap the Japs, to fight fascism at home, or to smell nice under the arms. All of this is propaganda by the broad definition. Since war and navy department usage never put the Corps of Chaplains, the PX system, the safety campaigns, or the anti-VD announcements under the rubric of propaganda, it might be desirable to narrow down the definition to exclude those forms of propaganda designed to effect private or non-political purposes and make the definition read, Propaganda consists of the planned use of any form of public or mass-produced communication designed to affect the minds and emotions of a given group for a specific public purpose, whether military, economic, or political. This may be termed the everyday definition of propaganda, as it is used in most of the civilian college textbooks. For military purposes, however, it is necessary to trim down the definition in one more direction, applying it strictly against the enemy, and making it read, Military propaganda consists of the planned use of any form of communication designed to affect the minds and emotions of a given enemy, neutral or friendly foreign group for a specific strategic or tactical purpose. Note that if the communication is not planned, it cannot be called propaganda. If a lieutenant stuck his head out of a tank turret and yelled at some Japs in a cave, Come on out of there, you blankety-blanks, or we'll blank you all to blank, you etc. The communication may or may not work, but in the technical sense, it is not propaganda, because the lieutenant did not employ that form of communication planned and designed to affect the minds or emotions of the Japanese in the cave. Had the lieutenant given the matter thought, and had he said in the Japanese language, enemy persons forthwith commanded to cease resistance, 
Otherwise, American Army regrets inescapable consequences attendant upon operation of flamethrower. The remark would have been closer to propaganda. Furthermore, propaganda must have a known purpose. This element must be included in the definition. A great deal of communication, both in wartime and in peacetime, arises because of the pleasure which it gives to the utterer, and not because of the result it is supposed to effect in the hearers. Sending the Japanese cartoons of themselves, mocking the German language, calling Italians by familiar but inelegant names, such communications cropped up during the war. The senders got a lot of fun out of the message, but the purpose was unintelligently considered. The actual effect of the messages was to annoy the enemy, stiffening his will to resist. Screams of rage had a place in primitive war. In modern military propaganda, they are too expensive a luxury to be tolerated. Planned annoyance of the enemy does, of course, have its role, a minor, rare, and special one. Psychological warfare is simple enough to understand if it is simply regarded as application of propaganda to the purposes of war, as in the following definition. Psychological warfare comprises the use of propaganda against an enemy, together with such other operational measures of a military, economic, or political nature as may be required to supplement propaganda. In this sense, psychological warfare is a known operation which was carried on very successfully during World War II under the authority of the Combined and Joint Chiefs of Staff. It is in this sense that some kind of a psychological warfare unit was developed in every major theater of war, and that the American military assimilated the doctrines of psychological warfare. However, this is only one of several ways of using the term psychological warfare. There is, in particular, one other sense, in which the term became unpleasantly familiar during the German conquest of Europe, the sense of warfare psychologically waged. In the American use of the term, psychological warfare was the supplementing of normal military operations by the use of mass communications. In the Nazi sense of the term, it was the calculation and execution of both political and military strategy on studied psychological grounds. For the American uses, it was modification of traditional warfare by the effective generous use of a new weapon. For the Germans, it involved a transformation of the process of war itself. This is an important enough distinction to warrant separate consideration. Warfare psychologically waged. Various labels were devised to name Hitler's queer terrifying strategy for the period 1936 to 1941. One writer, Edmund Taylor, called it the strategy of terror in a book by that name, Boston, 1940, and also the War of Nerves. Another, Ladislas Farago, a political journalist who started out as an authority on the Axis Fifth Column in the Near East and ended up in American naval psychological warfare planning, put forth a book called German Psychological Warfare, a critical, 
Annotated and Comprehensive Survey and Bibliography, New York, 1941, which digested hundreds of German works on topics pertaining to psychology and war. Much of this material concerned personnel practices, psychosomatic medicine, and other non-propaganda aspects of psychology. But the book as a whole was an impressive demonstration of how much the Germans had done to make their war scientific. Other articles and books on the Nazi inventions followed in rapid succession. After the excitement had died down, it was found that the novelty of the German war effort lay in two special fields. First, the perfect or perfect-seeming synchronizing of political, propaganda, subversive, and military efforts. Second, the use of the findings of modern psychology for the attainment of military goals. The Germans set the pace in the pre-war and early war period, and United Nations psychological warfare tried to keep up, even though the two efforts were different in scope and character. In conquering Europe, the German staff apparently used opinion analysis. Much of this analysis has turned out to have been superb guesswork. At the time, it looked as though the Nazis might have found some scientific formula for determining just when a nation would cave in. In the conduct of war, the Germans waged a rapid war, which was industrially, psychologically, and militarily sound as long as it worked. Their diplomacy of dramatic intimidation used the war threat to its full value, with the result that the Czechoslovaks surrendered the Sudetenland without a shot and then submitted themselves to tyranny half a year later. The Germans wrung every Fenning's worth of advantage out of threatening to start war, and when they did start war, they deliberately tried to make it look as horrible as it was. The psychologists had apparently taught the German political and military intelligence people how to get workable opinion forecasts. German analysis of anti-Nazi counter-propaganda was excellent. Add all this to strategy and field operations which were incontestably brilliant, the effect was not that of mere war, but of a new kind of war, the psychological war. The formula for the psychological war is not to be found in the books of the psychologists, but in the writings of the constitutional lawyers. The totality of war is a result of dictatorship within government. Total coordination results from total authority. The secret weapon of the Germans lay in the power which the Germans had openly given Hitler, and in his use of that power in a shrewd, ruthless, effective way. The Führer led the experts, not the experts the Führer. If the Germans surprised the world by the cold calculation of their timing, it was not because they had psychological brain trusters inventing a new warfare, but because they had a grim political freak commanding the total resources of the Reich. Even in wartime, no American president has ever exercised the authority which Hitler used in time of peace. American cabinet members, military and naval figures, press commentators and all sorts of people are free to commit to offer their own opinions, to bring policy into the light of day. That is as it should be. 
The same factors which made psychological warfare possible in the beginning of the war were the ones which led to Germany's futile and consummate ruin in 1944-45. Excessive authority, an uninformed public, centralized propaganda, and secret political planning. That kind of psychological warfare, war tuned to the needs of fanatically sought lusts for power, war coordinated down to the nth degree, waged in the light of enemy opinion and aiming at the political and moral weaknesses of the enemy, is not possible within the framework of a democracy. Even from within Imperial Japan, Pearl Harbor had to be waged secretly as a purely naval operation. Those Japanese, who would have told the board of field marshals and fleet admirals that an unannounced attack was the best way to unify all American factions against Japan, were obviously not brought into the planning of the Pearl Harbor raid. The Japanese still had too much of their old parliamentary spirit left over, as Ambassador Rui's reports show. The military had to outsmart the home public, along with the foreigners. In the Western dictatorships, the home public is watched by elite troops, secret police, party cells, and is made the subject of psychological warfare along with the victim nations. Hitler could turn the war spirit on and off. The Japanese did not dare do so to any effective extent. Psychological warfare was too dictatorial a measure even for pre-war Japan. It is therefore permanently out of reach of the authorities of the United States. After war starts, we are capable of surprising the enemy with such things as incendiary raids, long-range bombers, and nuclear fission, but we cannot startle with the start of war. The United States is not now capable, and under the spirit of the Constitution, can never be capable of surprising an enemy by the timing of aggression. If the same were true of all other nations, peace would seem much nearer than it does. German psychological warfare, in the broad sense of warfare psychologically waged, depended more on political background than on psychological techniques. Disunity among the prospective victims, the complacence of powers not immediately affected, demonstration of new weapons through frightful applications, use of a dread of war to harness pacifism to appeasement, the lucky geographic position of Germany at the hub of European communications, such factors made the German war of nerves seem new. Such psychological warfare is not apt to be successful elsewhere except for aggressions by dictatorships against democracies. Where the democracies are irritable, tough, and alert, it will not work at all. The psychological warfare which remains as a practical factor in war is therefore not the Hitlerian war of nerves, but the Anglo-American application of propaganda means to pre-decided strategy. Let him who will advocate American use of the war of nerves. He will not get far with commentators publishing his top-secret schedule of timing, with legislators very properly catechizing him on international morality, with members of his own organization 
publishing their memoirs or airing their squabbles right in the middle of the operation. He would end up by amusing the enemy whom he started out to scare. Psychological warfare has its place in our military and political system, but its place is a modest one, and its methods are limited by our usages, morality, and law. Propaganda Definitions Propaganda has been defined. It remains to distinguish some of the other technical and professional terms which apply in this field. In operational terms, propaganda can be distinguished by the consideration of five elements. 1. Source, including media. 2. Time. 3. Audience. 4. Subject. 5. Mission. These factors are given in approximate order of importance to the analyst, and provide a good working breakdown for propaganda analysis when expert staffs are not available. The five factors can be remembered by memorizing the initial letters in order, S-T-A-S-M. The last factor, mission, covers the presumed effect which the enemy seeks by dissemination of the item. Without going into the technique of field propaganda analysis described below, it is useful to apply these analysis factors to the definition of some subordinate types of military propaganda. Source is the most important. If the source is open and acknowledged, the government issuing it is putting the propaganda on the record before the world and must therefore issue the propaganda with a certain amount of dignity and with an eye to the future. If the source is faked, then it is important for the government or army to make sure that the faking is a good job and that the propaganda cannot readily be traced back. Two very different techniques are employed. Open sources require responsible public officials, preferably men with international reputations, who will get the best effect from use of the name and facilities of the government. Use of an open source usually, but not always, implies belief of the disseminator in the veracity of his materials. Fabricated sources require persons adept at illicit imaginativeness, impromptu forgery, and general devilment, combined with a strong sense of discipline and security. The United States was so chary of mixing the two kinds of propaganda during World War II that it operated them in different categories, giving rise to the three following types. White propaganda is issued from an acknowledged source, usually a government or an agency of a government, including military commands at various levels. This type of propaganda is associated with overt psychological operations. Gray propaganda does not clearly identify any source. Black propaganda purports to emanate from a source other than the true one. This type of propaganda is associated with covert psychological warfare operations. White propaganda is shown in Figure 4, which does everything possible to make the message the official message of the British and American governments. Figure 4 illustrates the pass which brought them in. 
Germans liked things done in an official and formal manner, even in the midst of chaos, catastrophe, and defeat. The Allies obliged, and gave the Germans various forms of very official-looking surrender passes, of which this is one. The original is printed in red, and has banknote-type engraving, which makes it resemble a soap premium coupon. Western Front, 1944-45, issued by Schaefe. End Figure 4 The border is done up in handsome banknote fashion. The great seals of the nations are handsomely displayed. The signatures of the commanding generals are shown as further attestation of the openness and good faith of the issuer of the propaganda. Figure 38 was also prepared by British-American authority. It, too, had the job of making Germans surrender. Figure 38 illustrates black counter-propaganda. Seeing that the Germans had a good counter-propaganda medium, the Allies decided to use it themselves. They issued this counter-propaganda sheet, shown in original and facsimile in English. The blackness is not very black, since few Germans would consider this to be German in origin once they had read it. End of figure 38. But in this case, nothing was done to make the British-American source evident. Indeed, every effort was made to hide the source, so that the German who read it would think that it came from within his own territory. The two different kinds of propaganda were both of them needed. Each supplemented the other, but they had to be kept apart as far as possible. In the field of radio, the difference between covert and overt was even more plain. During World War II, the ether over Europe was filled with appeals from radio stations both public and covert in character. The British spoke to the Germans over BBC, making no effort to conceal the fact that they were British. But they also spoke to the Germans over clandestine stations, which pretended to be freelancing Nazis, German army stations, or freedom group operations. The Germans, comparably, beamed official German news to the United States in English, but they also pretended to be Americans broadcasting from an isolationist radio in the American Midwest. In some cases, the belligerent powers used the identical radio transmission facilities for overt and covert propaganda. Radio Saipan, under the Americans, was, most of the time, the relay for the acknowledged San Francisco programs. Intermittently, OSS borrowed it, and it then became a Japanese station. Under such conditions, black radio cannot remain black very long. In terms of the timing, propaganda can be subdivided into two further categories, strategic and tactical. Strategic propaganda is conducted with no immediate effect in view. Its purpose is to wear down the enemy by psychological changes that may extend over months. Figure 19, warning the Germans of the remote future, is an example of this in leaflet form. Figure 19 illustrates propaganda against propaganda. As an occasional stunt, propaganda is directed against propaganda, 
Hitler did so in his book Mein Kampf. The leaflet, shown in the original and in facsimile, was used by the Allies on the Germans in the West. A German leaflet, addressed to their own troops' defensive propaganda, was picked up, X'd out, copied, and refuted. End figure 19. Tactical propaganda is operated to accomplish an immediate short-range purpose and normally does not cover a long time span. Only in a few cases, such as leaflets for a besieged enemy unit, is tactical propaganda run for a purpose that encompasses a long delay between the operation and the expected result. These two forms may be defined as follows. Strategic propaganda is directed at enemy forces, enemy peoples, and enemy-occupied areas in their entirety, and, in coordination with strategic planning, is designed to effectuate results planned and sought over a period of weeks, months, or years. Tactical propaganda is directed at specific audiences, usually named, and is prepared and executed in support of localized combat operations. Another set of distinctions can be set up, depending on the relationship of the propaganda operation to the simultaneous hostile propaganda operations, namely offensive or defensive propaganda. Before the advent of World War II, this distinction appeared to be significant, but experience on almost all fronts indicated that it meant little when applied to day-in, day-out necessities of actual practice. Propaganda is so intimately keyed to the news and opinion situation that it does not usually bear elaborate pre-operational analysis. Elaborate planning very often ends up in the locked files. The distinction of offensive and defensive means little in routine work. However, for the sake of the record, the distinction can be listed. Defensive propaganda is designed to maintain an accepted and operating form of social or other public action. Soviet propaganda for the five-year plans is a conspicuous instance. Offensive propaganda is designed to interrupt social action not desired by the propagandist, or to predispose to social action which he desires either through revolutionary means within the same society, or international, either diplomatic or belligerent, between different societies. Another set of distinctions arises from the purpose which the propaganda officer or group may have in mind for the people whom he addresses. These distinctions, like offensive-defensive, are theoretical rather than practical, and did not often appear in the actual operations, although all the more hush-hush plans made elaborate references to them. Conversionary propaganda is designed to change the emotional or practical allegiance of individuals from one group to another. Divisive propaganda is designed to split apart the component subgroups of the enemy and thereby reduce the effectiveness of the enemy group considered as a single unit.
an instance is provided by the Allied effort to make German Catholics think first as Catholics, then as Germans. Consolidation propaganda is directed toward civil populations in areas occupied by a military force and is designed to ensure compliance with the commands or policies promulgated by the commander of the occupying force. Counter-propaganda is designed to refute a specific point or theme of enemy propaganda. Japanese charges of American atrocities usually followed American charges of Japanese atrocities. Except for those terms that are firmly rooted in the literature of propaganda, most of the distinctions can be forgotten. The basic distinctions are those determined by the task involved and not by the propaganda content. World War II brought up a very sore issue between military and civilians with respect to propaganda in areas with unsettled governments, such as Darwinist North Africa, Communist China, all of Siam. See also discussion of World War II below. In these areas, every military act involved the definition of the political relations of the United States government to the governments locally enjoying authority. Were we at war with them or not? And so on. In these cases, politics itself became a vital foundation to propaganda, especially when the local authorities were themselves active in the propaganda field. The American theater and unit commanders had to decide what kinds of political promises they could or could not make. In this job, they had a more difficult task than did the British, who possessed in the political warfare executive a pooling facility, which coordinated foreign policy with propaganda. Could we promise freedom from France to the Algerians? or immunity to the Siamese who re-double-crossed in the matter of allegiance and got ready to subvert the Japanese, or the Yenan people who wanted us to hijack the Generalissimo as a price of their support, or the Indonesians who might oppose the Japanese and already opposed the Dutch? Such questions transcended propaganda. Their decision made propaganda or unmade it but the deciding power was outside the authority of the propaganda people. Political warfare is, therefore, in administrative terms, a higher level activity than propaganda and may be defined as follows. Political warfare consists of the framing of national policy in such a way as to assist propaganda or military operations, whether with respect to the direct political relations of governments with one another, or in relation to groups of people possessing a political character. Such policy framing does not normally fall within the authority of the army or navy, though these may be consulted and called upon to effect appropriate military action. An outstanding instance of the use of political warfare was President Roosevelt's impromptu enunciation of the theme unconditional surrender at Casablanca. The theme affected not only our propaganda, but the types of surrenders which American generals could accept from Germans. End of section 5